Welcome to this episode of the Connection Podcast. We are joined by Peter Bayan. We really look forward to speaking with Peter for some time. He is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Springfield, Fourth Ward. And we decided a title of Weak Things Become Strong for this episode, which you'll see it's become sort of a theme for Peter's life. He shares a variety of stories, including experiences from his service mission in Nauvoo, Illinois, to his battle with dyslexia and and coming out on top, which is so cool. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. I think a lot of people are going to relate to it. Enjoy. Welcome to Connection Podcast. I'm Jason Keister, the show's producer, and we have a couple of guests with us today. We're going to be interviewing Peter Bain from Springfield Fourth Ward. Say hi, Peter. Hi. And then we have a, a returning guest here with us. Thank you for coming on. We have Deb Baldwin. Hi, everybody. Welcome. So we were, we were talking before we got started today, discussing the fact that all of us come from somewhere out of state. So I I come from Washington, and you were saying that you grew up in California, Peter. Yeah, little town Taft. Deb, you were over in New York, upstate New York. Upstate, a little town called Athens. Yeah. So what I wanted to start the podcast off with is just a silly question about any just terrible travel story that you have. We'll start with Peter and go around. Right before we moved here, I was doing an internship for for my job. And most of it was at home. And then I would have to travel to Phoenix for uh, in-person training. And I I had an ulcer that I wasn't aware of. And it bled like the week before I left um, for my first week of in-person training. So I had spent three days in the hospital getting a procedure done and lots of blood taken. And then I was supposed to be at the offices in Phoenix with a suit on Monday morning on in a suit. Did I say that? I might have already said that. And my flight was delayed. My first leg of my flight was delayed. And so I missed my connecting flight. So I got in at about 12 o'clock at night and they had lost my bag and I just had shorts and a t-shirt on. And (sighs) This is my my worst nightmare. (laughs) They said, if you wait until one in the morning, we have another flight coming from that same place. So you can maybe get your bag. Um, So I waited till one in the morning and my bag wasn't there. So like two o'clock in the morning, I got to the hotel. I had to get up at six to be at the offices. So with about four hours of sleep, I show up with just shorts and a t-shirt on. And I had track marks up my arms from when they were taking blood at the hospital and I had no shaving gear, nothing. I just, I was just there and I was going around going, I am not making a statement about the dress code. They lost my bag, you know, and I was like, they're going to send me home They're You know, they think I'm a drug addict or something. So it worked out. They ended up going, man, this guy came here on four hours of sleep with nothing. (laughs) So it worked out in the long run, but I was pretty nervous and it was a pretty miserable day. So I love how having an ulcer and staying in the hospital is the least complicated and stressful (laughs) part of that whole story. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. Oh, I think I had a similar thing where I, I showed up to a med school interview, but they didn't like my, my clothes didn't come. 
through the baggage claim, but it was a University of Washington interview. Didn't care. <laughs> Hate the Huskies, separate thing, but yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Wow. Oh. What about you, Deb? Oh, when I was coming out to Oregon from New York, my dad, I think he was just really in, in a place of fear. And he just like, was like, don't do this. Don't do that. Don't stop at a truck stop. Don't, you know, all these things. And I just was, he, at one point, he just was really upset that I hadn't bought chains for my tires. And so he literally said, you're going to die. And I just was like, <laughs> white knuckling it out here the whole time. And instead of just, you know, calming myself down, I just was kind of freaked out. But it was also like dead of winter and it was a bad <laughs> winter, like across the whole country. Like I couldn't have gone a different route and found a different route that was better because it just, you know, ice storms in Texas and all this stuff. And I remember finally getting to, I want to say it was like Snowflake, Idaho or Utah. I don't know which one, <laughs> but it was uh, maybe on the border somewhere and just like complete whiteout trying to not go down like a huge ravine. <laughs> and I'm like, huh, I wonder if, you know, the adversary is working against me because I'm really supposed to be in Oregon. That was like the first time I was like, hmm, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was sketchy at best. And yeah, I, I found out that I could drive a really long time without stopping. So that was <laughs> a new skill that I figured out. There, there is a snowflake Arizona. Oh, I wonder okay. if that's where you were. No, like, <laughs> oh no, Idaho, Utah, something like that. I'm like, yeah, they weren't kidding. It was a total whiteout. Like, <laughs> I didn't see on my my weather app. Holy crud! That's so great. I I have a lot. I honestly haven't had the best luck traveling. So there's there's a deep well to pull from, but. For me, it had to be when I graduated from BYU-Idaho and we were moving to Missouri for medical school. We had we were lucky enough to have two vehicles at the time, but we had like no money. And Camille and I traveled separate. And I remember arriving in St. Louis, which is where we were moving, and getting a call from Camille like, where are you? You know, I, I haven't seen you. We were supposed to meet at the hotel. I can't find the hotel. And come to find out this was the day a little bit before, you know, Google Maps and stuff like that. And ends up that she's in Kansas City and I'm in Springfield. Neither one of us has any money at all. We're out of gas and end up having to like call my parents to bail us out. I ended up staying in a totally different hotel that didn't accept pets, by the way. So I left my hamster. We had a hamster at the time out in the <laughs> truck and the hamster died because I didn't realize that there is incredible humidity and heat in St. Louis in the summer. <laughs> so I had to call Camille about that as she was traveling from Kansas City to St. Louis. So yeah, just miserable travel story for sure. Yeah. Probably missed some details there too. So you were the one that took the wrong road? She was on the right road. I, I would say that I was on the right route, road, but she would probably argue differently. <laughs> and it was your hamster? or It was our hamster, yeah. That was our first pet, and I definitely killed the hamster. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Felt bad. I'd, yeah. But that's how I learned about the humidity in the Midwest. So, well, let's, let's get... Literally deadly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's get started here. So... Generally, we start each episode, we're, we're using this hypothetical scenario where you're in a new ward and you're introducing yourself and your family to everybody and go. Uh, so Jessica and I met at a SDSU singles dance. Well, we officially met at an SDSU singles dance. Um, I had seen her 
elsewhere at another. I was on a date with somebody else and I saw her at like a singles activity and I really wanted to talk to her, but I was on a date with somebody else. So I waited and then I saw her at a thing at school, making up a test that I was making up because she went to her sister's graduation at BYU and I went to camp on a beach in Baja. So it was really responsible of me. And we we were both making up the same test, but she was focused on the test, so she didn't notice me at all. And the next day we were at a SDSU singles dance, even though neither of us went to SDSU. And so I approached her and talked to her about her humanities test. And we got married in, well, it was 2000 when we met. And then 2001, January of 2001, we got married. Uh, we've been married for 21, 22 years. That's, yeah, 22 years. 22 years. And awesome. we have three boys. Our oldest is Tyler. He just, he's 18 now, graduated from high school. Just got his mission call. Just got his mission call to Austin, Texas. Um, so really proud of him. He's kind of sudden, he's always been very conscious of his example to his younger brothers. Um, Ethan, who's 16, so he's, about to get his driver's license. Uh, and then Dallin, our youngest, is 13. And we we lived in uh, – we went to BYU together after we got married, so we did a little bit backwards. Uh, we went to BYU as a married couple. And while we were there, we uh, we didn't have any kids until we moved back. We moved to Temecula after we gra- after Jessica graduated and I finished. In Temecula, that's where, that's where Camille's family lives. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, okay. well, if you talk about that more, that's yeah, cool. Yeah, so we yeah. lived there for seven years. It's pretty. After. It's super hot there, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's where my wife grew up, was yeah. Temecula. Well, oh. San Diego, Temecula. Yeah, that's really cool. We'll, yeah. we'll have to talk later, see if yeah. we know the, some of the same what, people. What's her last name or the family member? Robinson. She probably knows. My wife probably knows Robinson. So. Yeah, we'll have to talk about it later. And then uh, we... We had a job opportunity. I worked for Big Five Sporting Goods for a long time. We had a job opportunity, so we had to move to Colorado for that job opportunity. It was the first time we had really lived away from family, but we really, really loved it there. Our ward just kind of embraced us, and we just we felt like we would never leave. Um, and then this opportunity came available for my work, and I have family in this area um, in Pleasant Hill and in Cresswell and uh, Cottage Grove. And one of my brothers had put a lot of pressure on us for about 10 years to move out here. And we finally caved in and, and did it when this opportunity came available. So we've been here for five years and, uh, well, I guess we're new to the ward. So, uh, <laughs> to this. and, um, yeah, so we're just very, very happy to be here and our ward's been great. So as much as we loved Colorado and we didn't want to leave, it's been a really, really good move for us and for our kids. So, Cool. Awesome. So there, there are a lot of things that we wanted to get into. In fact, I have to say your friend John Sperry said we had to do a multi-part episode with you. We'll, we'll, see, <laughs> we'll hold him to that. You yeah. know. <laughs> so help me if you're wrong, John. So help me. <laughs> but the, the first thing I, I really wanted to talk with you about is you did a service mission over mm-hmm. in Nauvoo. Right. Uh, it was a performance mission, correct? Correct. Uh, yeah. Tell us tell us more about that. That is something that, honestly, you were the first person I met that's done anything like that. Yeah. So um, when I was, <clears throat> my grandma served a mission in Nauvoo in the Lands and Records office when I was in high school. 
And I got, uh, I kind of got into theater a little bit in high school because, uh, well, there was a, my junior year, there was a, they were doing a production of Romeo and Juliet and there was a really pretty girl in school that asked me if I would rehearse lines with her because she was auditioning for Juliet. And so I did. And then while we were rehearsing, she said, um, I should really audition for the play. And I played sports and I did other things. And the drama kids were a little bit different than the people I normally hung out with. But you do stupid things for pretty girls sometimes. <laughs> so I went and auditioned and I got the role. Um, and I ended up really, really loving the experience and making a whole new set of friends that I probably wouldn't have hung out with otherwise. And they were a little bit, they were just very um, free and different. And, you know, so it became this like really fun thing. So my senior year, I actually did a couple plays and my grandma said, there's this perfect mission for, for Pete if he will audition. And it's here in Nauvoo. They do a performance at the visitor center and at the, the, um, cultural center. If you've ever been to Nauvoo, um, they have a stage in the cultural center and in the visitor center. And so we did a play, they were going to do, they do plays about the history of the church there. And I, she pulled some strings and got me an audition, even though it was late to the game. And I went to, uh, Salt Lake and I walk in and I thought this was going to be a small audition, like the plays I had done in high school. It was like a hundred people were there. Oh, and man. it was, you had to sing a song and you had to do a monologue. You actually had to sing two songs and do a monologue and talk about yourself a little bit. And I had never been in a musical and my sister was a very talented singer and the brother just older than me was a very talented singer. And they would sit on each side of me at church and they would plug their ear <laughs> that was on my side because I would throw them off. They said, um, and, uh, and so when I got up to audition the song part, cause you had to talk about yourself for a minute and then you just had to go into the song. And I said, well, I've never been in a musical and I don't really sing, but when I sing in the shower, man, I nail it. Right. And then I just sung this song. I think we all do. You yeah. Know, that is, right? why, why is nothing else like the shower? <laughs> yeah, I know. And, uh, and they, I got the letter. They send you a call because you set, they set you apart as a missionary for four months. And there were six elders and six sisters. And so when they sent me the letter saying that I had gotten in and they called me to be a young performing missionary, I was like, man, I am a much better singer than I thought I was. <laughs> and uh, then I got there the first day and the people in charge of us, they were kind of the, there was a married couple who had written the play and directed it and kind of took responsibility for us. They sat us all down and they were very, very upfront with your abilities. They were very, <laughs> and they go around the room and they're like, you're really good at this. You're really good at that. You're not good at this. So don't try to do this, you know? And they got to me and they were like, elder band, you cannot sing worth a lick, <laughs> 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 but we brought you because of your personality and your ability to act. So you're going to take some voice lessons. There was a choral director that was, on a mission there 
and he gave me some voice lessons and they're like, our goal is just to teach you to blend. And then you do all the speaking parts. And so, so that was a little humbling, but it was was an amazing experience. Yeah. I was going to ask if you were upset that your brother and sister were right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had the sneaking suspicion that they were, but then I had this like amazing, like, I was like, well, I got selected. And I, you know, out of all these people, and then I got there and found out, no, I was, I was wrong. I wasn't a good singer, but they did give me voice lessons and I was able to start blending. And by the end of the summer, they did give me some solo parts that they kind of worked in, which was kind of cool. I, I really feel like that's one of those weak things become strong kind of, um, blessings in my life. I had lots of those in my life, but that was one of them where it was, I'm still not, uh, I wouldn't say I'm a soloist or like a a great singer, but I, I was able to, to do that. And that was, that was great. That was a lot of fun. So during the day we would work on the, the sites, um, me and my companion were assigned to work in the brickyard if you've ever been there. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, the small tangent is we, we, Lived in St. Louis. I went to medical school there for four years and going to Carthage Jail, to the Nauvoo site. We would do that at least once a year. And yeah. the kids love the brick site. Yeah. You know, yeah. because uh, they get a little souvenir when they go there, mm-hmm. right? They get a souvenir brick. They get to hear about how they're made, which yeah. is super cool. Right. Yeah. yeah. So initially we were supposed to do the tours and say how bricks were made and stuff. We were assigned there with some of the – um senior missionaries, some of the husbands, and they were, you know, they were mostly grandfathers and they didn't like mixing the clay, but they loved doing the tours and they, they kind of were okay with like printing the bricks and stuff, but they would, uh, they would sneak a soda if we did all the clay and Ooh, made the bricks. That's pretty good. And they would do the tours. And so me and my companion just, and they, they loved, I mean, they were so much fun to be around. Just like this, they were all like all of our grandpas and they tell us corny grandpa jokes and slip us soda pop because we weren't <laughs> supposed to be drinking soda because yeah. we were singing every night. So they were like, Oh, no soda, especially for you, elder band, you know, but <laughs> see that that's why our vocals are, are aren't as good as they could be on the podcast because we're always drinking diet soda. Right, right. So case in point, I'm yeah, one with I know. Right now. <laughs> I gotta really think that through. Or maybe we're doing really good, all things considered, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. So but that was that was awesome. And then at night we would go do uh two shows, maybe three, depending on how big the crowd was in Nauvoo that night. And then it was uh it was a really, really amazing time. And I was there with some very talented people. Some of them went to Broadway, um, young ambassadors at BYU. So it was just, it was just a, a great time. And my testimony really, really grew um, during that time before my two-year proselyting mission. What kind of performances did the heavy doing? Because I, it, my understanding is there's actually multiple shows. There's there's the big pageant that they mm-hmm. put on that is usually well attended, but there's also several smaller shows, correct? Right. So we were in charge of the smaller shows. the The pageant they would have at the time they had what was called the City of Joseph pageant, and they would, um, for like one week out of the summer, they would bring a lot of people in and they would get all costumed up and do a big production. And we would 
do extra shows during the day during that time. But ours was called Nauvoo Adventure and Rendezvous in Old Nauvoo. Nauvoo Adventure was in the visitor center, and it was just the young performing missionaries, so the 12 of us. And then when we do Rendezvous at Old Nauvoo, we would combine with the senior couples and do, and it was kind of, they would take journal entries. Uh, the way they wrote them is they took journal entries from people that lived in Nauvoo, and we'd kind of go through the story of Nauvoo through the journal. So at one point I would be um, like a little boy that's stuck on the ice as the ice starts to break up as they're trying to cross. Um, and the, another minute I was like Orson Pratt like helping plan uh, the economy or the uh, the Trek West. So you were different characters. Like one guy was Jonathan Browning because he was a prominent member in Nauvoo and uh, was a gunsmith, a lot of people heard of. But then he was also um, Joseph Smith at one part in the play. My companion, though, was the designated Brigham Young because mm. um, he looked the most like him. So he, he was uh, – he was Brigham Young for most of the time in both shows. <laughs> and so, um, but then when we combined with the senior couples, it was kind of the same thing, but the senior couples was a little bit more lighthearted, a lot more like kind of silly, fun. Um, I mean, we'd still talk about uh, the martyrdom of Joseph Smith in that show. And one of the scenes, there was a, I, it was actually a scene that I would do where I was with a lady that was that was playing my mother and we were leaving Nauvoo. My father had died. So I was kind of the man of the house. She would sing a song called Farewell Nauvoo, which was probably the most popular song in any of our shows. But we also made a CD while I was there of the Nauvoo Adventure show, which um, my sister had until recently. She gave it to me so I could play it for my kids so they could hear our show and it was a beginning to end of Navu adventure. So that was kind of fun to, to be able to listen to it, but I have no solos in that one. Oh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Really yeah. And when they look at pictures of it, I mean, I had hair and all of that stuff. So they're like, <laughs> wow, look at this. This is dad. All dressed up. The kids always assume that once you go bald, you were always bald. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And then where did you serve your two-year mission? Um, I went to Tacoma, Washington. Oh. So I was supposed to have my mission paperwork submitted halfway through my performance mission in Nauvoo. Uh, my bishop, though, had put the papers in the desk and forgot. <laughs> and so some of the other missionaries there, <laughs> some of the other missionaries there were getting their calls. And I was like, why aren't I getting my call? And then... Um, right before I came home, my our bishop contacted my parents. Was like, I forgot, and now he has to redo his medical exam and everything else. So I came back and I re-earned some money, and then I left on my two year. Wow. After that. So, gosh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Nauvoo too. Yeah. So in our last episode, by the way, you guys should listen to the last episode. It was awesome with Charlotte Westover, but uh, she talked about the pioneers mm -hmm. and how our you know our leaders in the church have actually shared that they consider those stories of the pioneers to be similar in quality and importance to what we get from the book of mormon and yeah. other scripture and that really helped me refocus my mindset a little bit on the importance of those stories of the early saints and i 
I think that for anybody that's been there, I don't know if you've been there, Deb, to Navu, but there, there's a special spirit and vibe that you can pick up on there, even if nobody told you anything that happened there, even if you had no context, mm-hmm. uh, would be my personal feeling on that. I did, I was curious what impact that had on you as far as just your appreciation for the early saints um, or just the the spirit of what they went through. Well, so our first month when we're there, we're learning the show, we're learning the sites, but they also would take us to all the different historical places like Carthage Jail. Um, we went to Quincy, Illinois, where the saints first crossed the river, and they have a park there dedicated to the kindness that Quincy showed the saints. Um and they they just took us to different sites, and then every Sunday we would go to towns around and visit the branches and wards, and we would do like a musical performance and speak in their sacrament meetings. And it was just like being there. And it was also the sesquicentennial celebration of the saints leaving Nauvoo when I was there. I was there in 96. And the next year was the sesquicentennial of them arriving in Utah um, so there was a wagon train that started from Nauvoo that left and then went to winter quarters that that summer and then picked up the next year and went to Utah. And so um, there were people there that were – their relatives had been a part of the original pioneers and they wanted – like one lady I remember talking to, she had read a lot about her her relative who had walked. She was a young woman that – hadn't that had no family her family had passed away or weren't members and didn't come with her to Nauvoo and so she had left she walked all the way by herself with the help of a family but they didn't have room in a wagon or anything for her so she had to walk and and so she was reenacting her like great 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 grandmother's walk from Nauvoo to to Utah and so just hearing those stories and just hearing about the perseverance and the sureness that they had in what they were what they were doing i mean they gave up everything for this gospel so it was it was a sacred place there was just a lot of sacred stories that you would hear and feel at while you were there so it was just a it was an amazing experience for my testimony to to hear and it it kind of you hear a lot of sometimes you hear people attack the history of the church like oh we don't talk about the bad parts of the history of the church. Well, when we were there, we did hear about some of the things that weren't the best, you know, but it was also, a li- it felt like it was a little bit more in context because you could hear kind of what they were going through and still how how dedicated they were to their testimonies of the gospel to, to do what they did. And so um, if I had to pinpoint like one experience there, I would have to say probably... Gosh, there was a lot, but, uh, well, honestly, one of the most spiritual experiences I had is we had during pageant week, there would be people that would come to pass out pamphlets against the church. Um, so they'd come to the sites and, and kind of ask a lot of questions and try to cause a little bit of discord while you're doing the tours. And, um, I wasn't giving the presentation, you know, I wasn't doing the tour, but I was witnessing um, one of the uh, senior missionaries there 
while somebody was trying to take the tour kind of off. And the senior missionary just stopped and shared his experience of joining the church and then through family history finding out that he had a relative that had been a member of the church back during pioneer days. And he shared the experience that that person had and the the love that that person had for Joseph Smith and the love the person that had for for book for the book of Mormon. Excuse me, the book of Mormon. There was nothing you couldn't argue it. There was no there was no way around it and it was so powerful that there was it just like stopped everything. We just he just adjourned the tour halfway through at that point too. And I just remember like this overpowering feeling of, and that I think the most important thing he said was he has a testimony of Joseph Smith. He has a testimony of the Book of Mormon, but his testimony was of Jesus Christ. And he pointed to second Nephi 25, yeah. 26 or somewhere around there. Anyway. Um, and it's the, we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ. And it just brought it all back to, you know, it's imperfect people, but we worship a perfect being that that uh, the gospel is, um, that, that's who we teach our children of. So I would have to say that was probably the most impactful at, at that point in my, in my mission. So Yeah, I could tell it was a really meaningful moment for you. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of something I've heard, you know, several other missionaries I've talked to just, you know, the power when you're speaking truth that you have to confound. Um, when there's negative spirit or people trying to cause discord, you know, when you when you have, when you speak truth, you have that support mm -hmm. that, that can confound people in those moments. So that's really cool. There's a lot of power in our own stories and our own experiences. And that's why we're so encouraged to write them down because that can become a guide in a scripture for our own families and for other people. So I think thinking about the pioneers and their uh -huh. contributions and the records of their stories is really interesting to think about. I'll go back to that podcast and listen to it. Later. Yeah, you should anyway. I mean, this one's going to be awesome too, so we're going to listen to this. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. Deb, did you have any other questions about Nauvoo or anything? Uh, just such an interesting, unique opportunity. Yeah. Um, so what was it like living there for you? And what was that like um, as part of that piece of your service mission? So when they they put us in a house, they put all the elders. It was funny because they put all the sisters, because there were six sisters, six elders. All the sisters stayed in one of the brick homes that were originally you know, it was like restored, but it was built by one of the like first, like one of the apostles or something at the time. I think it was. Uh, anyway, they they stayed in one of the those houses down in town, and they took the elders and they took us out across Joseph's Creek, which is, and they put us out in the middle of a cow field in a house that was not an original house built there, but it was one that the church owned, so that. I, I, I assume there was some wisdom so that we wouldn't embarrass the the town or whatever. <laughs> so the six of us lived there, um, and we were assigned our companion the first day there. And my companion, his name was Elder Slaymaker. Slaymaker, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah. It was That's kind awesome. of an interesting name. 
he and I were like, oh, we loved it. We ex- we got this like upstairs bedroom. And then like two days later, we're like, we can't stay up here. It's way too hot. So we moved downstairs and and uh, there was a basement in the apartment because we had some tornado warnings and things like that um, while we were there. And the bridge actually across Joseph's Creek washed out during one of the storms while we were there. And so we... Uh, we had to figure out another way to get into town because we had bikes um, that they that they gave us to to ride for the summer. So and yeah, I actually had occasion to stay in one of those brick buildings. Oh, okay. Yeah, I went to a singles conference in Davao, <laughs> and this lady, she was a um, a senior service missionary, and she was offering a place to stay, and I'm like, I need a place to stay. And so I got there and I was thinking, oh, I'd maybe have my own room. And it was like her bedroom that had an extra bed. And I was like, I don't think I can stay here. <laughs> I'm, a little, I'm a little weirded out by the, the setup, although I don't know why I was being so weird about it. But I ended up staying in Quincy. But yeah, oh, okay. I stayed one night in, in one of those buildings. So it was kind of interesting. <laughs> well, and that was my first like companionship experience where he was actually very um, – he was a great companion – but he was uh, kind of a neat freak. Not a, not kind of. He was very much like. So our entire P day was cleaning up the entire house because he just couldn't stand. And the other four were just like, "Oh, sweet, you guys are taking care of it." So, <laughs> but we all had different P days because we had to sub for each other at the different sites because um, we'd mostly give the uh, senior missionaries a break for lunch during the day was our, was our goal. Yeah. So. I remember thinking how cool it was and being like, if I knew this was an option for a mission, I may have yeah, served one. Yeah. I kind of wonder too, is the food better? Do you get a little more perks or? Um, <laughs> we would get dinner sometimes by the senior missionaries, which were always really awesome, you know, cause they'd make their best dish for us. But for the most part, we were, we had a budget, like a regular missionary. We had a senior couple that every P day would take us to Keokuk, which is across the river, because that's where the stores were. So they were our ride to Keokuk and they would always take us and buy us Chinese food at the same place every like every week. But then other than that, I mean we would uh we mostly during the week we had to feed ourselves because we'd have like a hour and a half to two hour break in between being on the sites and before we had to be back for the shows. And so we had to get back, make our dinner, eat, and then they wanted us to take a little nap before we would do our performances. Did you ever spend any time in Carthage? Yeah, we we definitely we went to Carthage that first month to go visit, and then um, we went back a couple times throughout the summer. Like when you'd have family come visit during the summer, um, almost every missionary there had family come at one point. So you would spend the day with them. You know, you'd plan your P day that day and you would go see Carthage and you'd go see a lot of the sites and stuff. So we went back during that time. Um, when I was there, the Nauvoo temple wasn't rebuilt yet. So they just had a model of the Nauvoo temple and we would, we would go and they still had the foundation for the baptismal font in a, the big pit basically. And so we would go there and kind of walk the grounds. But I remember thinking they had so many visitors during the summer that that, that temple would always be busy it's such yeah. an impressive temple. I don't know. I think just coming yeah. into town and seeing it. Yeah. It just on the hill there. Yeah. yeah. As you kind of crest the hill, it's really Yeah. 
It is. Okay, here's my random question that'll get me in trouble. So there's there's always at least one or two of these. So, because <laughs> um, because you do anybody that's been to Nauvoo, we have I don't know ninety percent of the site is LDS, but then mm-hmm. there's the community of Christ. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any interaction with them or? While yeah, you're there? actually, they encouraged us to because they had missionaries there. Uh, but the missionaries there were they would get like school credit at their private school that they owned. And at the time it was still called the reorganized church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and they were just kind of going through that transition where they were changing their name and, and some of those things. Um, but we actually went and we helped at one of their youth camps um, where we played kickball and, and stuff with the youth from their, from their church. And then we had, we got together for a couple of barbecues with some of their missionaries and, we definitely went and saw some of their own sites. Like we went and saw Joseph Smith and Emma Smith and Hiram Smith's grave site that's actually owned by by them. While we were there, the reorganized church also brought through the original um, transcript of the Book of Mormon that they had written or that had been by um, Oliver Cowdery. So we got to go take a look at that while it was there. And so we had quite a bit of interactions with them. This, I hope this doesn't sound terrible, but we could always tell which properties were owned by them opposed to our church because we had guys, we had young men and young women that that was their summer job was they were in the stake there and they would mow all the lawns and they would do it almost every day. And the grass was always longer at the <laughs> session because they didn't have somebody cutting the lawns every day. So we could always tell when we crossed into their properties or whatever, but we had a lot of actually really positive experiences because some of some of them were really going through a transition of questioning their testimonies because they had to give up some of their their beliefs or they had to you know like Joseph Smith one of them was kind of explaining it like and I I'm not sure because I'm not an expert on their doctrine or anything but they were saying that that they're going a little bit more mainstream Christianity and trying to distinguish themselves from us for different reasons. And um, so a, a couple of them really had a hard time with some of those changes. And we were able to talk to them about their faith and and uh, and just kind of share our testimonies with them. And so that was that was really interesting. That was cool. and no, that's that's super interesting though. Yeah. Like I always, I always wondered about that when we visited Nauvoo. Yeah, cool. Awesome. It was kind of interesting because I, I tried to travel around that whole area and into Missouri and everything, and I was trying to see all of the church sites in like one trip. Oh and yeah, it was kind of interesting. I forget whose gravesite it was, but I went to someone's, someone of prominent church history, to their gravesite, and it was like right off the side of the road, like almost maybe they. <laughs> They buried him there and then put a road through that part of town. And I was like, this is so <laughs> random, <laughs> like across the street from someone's house. And I'm like stopping on the side of the road. And I'm like, oh, that's where it is. Cool. <laughs> it was just really interesting. But there's a lot of um, power even in those places where it's like, oh, these people really lived and died by our religion and our beliefs. And yeah. yeah. It's really cool. I have a kind of a random thing as well. And this is kind of a side note, but my mom and dad, when they were visiting me in Nauvoo, they, um, they were changing, the church was changing their signs from 
like it said like there there was this big sign that said Carthage Jail Old Mormon Landmark. There was a big sign and it had a beehive on it. And they were changing it to a more, you know, like Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And and my parents are like, what are you going to do with the sign? And they said, oh, we're just going to throw it away. And so my parents got the sign and they wow. now have it hanging in their garage, this old, you know, it says Carthage Jail or Mormon land. <laughs> I just thought, I thought it was so funny because it's, my mom would take random things and stick them to the wall and that was her decorating style. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the things she stuck to the wall, so. Sorry, mom, if you heard that and you're upset. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really cool. It's like, yeah. there's just, even in the transitions, we have this legacy. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And we're all part of it. Well, great. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad we talked about that. I, I think Nauvoo, even just to put a cap on it, well, let's say something silly because I think that my son, Owen, who's been wandering around downstairs here, I think he actually holds the record for most senior missionaries he had to make in their uh, teaching or their lesson <laughs> early. Because nice. actually speaking of the, you know, the brick instruction and everything, the the brick house, he got into this shouting match with a kid. He was about, you know, three or four years old. <laughs> and they just kept one-upping each other. The The missionary asked, you know, who knows how bricks are made? My son's hand goes up. And then, you know, this other kid, he's like, well, my house is made of bricks. And then my son stands up and he goes, well, we live in a hotel because we were moving at that time. <laughs> and then, of course, we get the senior missionary. Okay, class over. He pulls us aside. Is everything okay at home with you guys? Right? <laughs> like, heard you're living in a hotel. <laughs> yeah, just, just for now. So I guess, yeah, you can, like they do have a breaking point. <laughs> yeah, we had a guy there. He worked in the blacksmith shop and he was missing a finger from like a farming accident. And every time a kid would reach over to touch something they weren't supposed to, he'd be like, don't touch that. <laughs> Look what it did to me. And it was just, man, he was crazy. And some of the kids would, you know, scare him pretty good. Some of them would get it and laugh, <laughs> but it was, uh, May have traumatized some kids. Yeah, so good. I like that. (laughs) Well, and we went back when we were in St. Louis recently with my sister, and the show's completely different, but they still have young performing missionaries. And my sister was insistent on telling all of them, hey, my brother did this. I was like, it was a long time ago. It was 1996 is when I was there. So They were just hoping you would break out into song. and Yeah, they yeah. were hoping. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't know that that wasn't what I was there for. <laughs> so good. All right, cool. So love that story. Love what we got into about Nauvoo. I wanted to turn time over to Deb a bit. What did you want to dive into now? Um, so I think part of um, your history, Peter, was about getting your education despite the dyslexia. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can give us some context to how that impacted you and how you were able to overcome that and get your education. Yeah, so um, it became pretty clear when I was young that there was there was, uh, there was was something wrong as far as my ability to read. And if I did read something I would never remember it, and I would need a nap right afterwards. Um, but if somebody read something to me, or like I heard or watched a movie or something along those lines, I'd remember it really, really well. And so they thought, they started to think, well, there's got to be something there. And so a lot of my teachers in elementary school 
they didn't have a lot of programs at the time for kids with any kind of learning disabilities, but they they said that they're like, well, he's obviously dyslexic. Uh, we just don't know what to do with it. But I had a lot of teachers that did go, I would say, above and beyond. You know, they didn't know what to do, but they were trying different things. And they never, there was always like a conversation to possibly hold me back in school because I just wasn't, you know, they do, they called it cat testing, which was like California aptitude testing, I think. And I would always score well below on reading and writing, but I was always way above on math. And so they would just say, we don't want to hold him back because he's good at math. Maybe we can figure this out kind of a thing as we went, as we kept going. And then uh, my dad was actually, is a math, was a math teacher before he retired. And so he would talk to a lot of different teachers. And since he was a teacher, they would get a lot of, uh, feedback and tips and just anything to try kind of a thing. And we can't even really figure out exactly who said this to him, but somewhere in like elementary school, I was in fifth grade, a member of the church had said, well, one thing is if you read, if, if you read the book of Mormon, he can get up to a decent grade level in reading because the complication of the language in it. And so they first tried to just have me read it on my own. That wasn't working because I just, I, I wouldn't read if I had free time. And so they started waking all of my siblings up at 530 in the morning. And I would read a column of the Book of Mormon to the family. And then we'd all join in and read like one verse at a time, a chapter every day. And we finished the Book of Mormon I was never a strong student up all the way through high school. I was actually kind of a class clown. And I think that happens a lot with kids who have a learning disability. They tend to act out in different ways or compensate in different ways and things like that. But I was good enough that I was going to graduate from high school and my parents weren't concerned with that anymore. And it was actually, there was uh, my deacon's quorum. Well, he was the second counselor in the young men's presidency when I was a deacon who I gave fits to at church, right? I was not easy to have. I would, I don't know if you guys ever had those buildings that didn't have windows up at the top story. They'd have this room for the boy scouts that had no windows upstairs in the church building. Um, I would, he would send me out of class because that's where we always have class. And I would always turn off the lights when I was out in the hall um, because there was a light switch outside and it would get completely pitch black in there. And I'd hear people fumbling around and kids laughing. And then as the la- the noise would get louder, I would flip it back on and act like it wasn't me, right? That turned it off. And I just, I don't know how he dealt with me. Uh, through that, um, but he was the one because my parents had put me in like a, a specialized class when I was in sixth grade, but it was kind of a class where uh, they just didn't know what to do with you, so they just put you in there. There was uh, It wasn't exactly a safe classroom to be in. I remember there was me and one other kid in sixth grade that were in the class together. He and I were kind of friends but we were kind of teasing some of the older kids that were in the class with us. And they, uh, one day we were walking to class cause we had to go from the sixth grade wing to the other side and 
we came walking around the corner and all of our class was standing outside a bathroom waiting for us. And they pulled us into the bathroom and made sure we knew not to make fun of them anymore. So we learned our lesson on it. But he actually went to my parents and said, Peter doesn't belong there. You need to get him out of there because that's not going to help him. He needs to. So he might have even been the one that said, read the Book of Mormon as a family. But it also really cemented our are just of my testimony of the Book of Mormon. I think that was the seeds that really grew my testimony was I had a love of the the Book of Mormon. I had a love of the Savior of God. You know, I knew he existed just because of that experience that we had. And then um, when I got into high school and I started doing theater, I realized I could memorize things pretty easily. And that really helped. And I had an English teacher that would give me extra credit if I'd do monologues once he realized that I did theater at school. So he would have me memorize different monologues and give me extra credit there. So that really helped. And then I went on my mission and beginning of my mission, I'd spend my whole study time just memorizing things because I just didn't want to read anything. But then my uh, mission president had challenged us to read 10 pages of the Book of Mormon every day for, it was 56 days and we were going to all finish the Book of Mormon together in less than two months was the goal. And I really took that to heart. And then I kind of like realized what I had to do to just be able to focus long enough. It took me longer. I got not more than two months, but like other guys could finish it in about 25 minutes. And it would take me like 45 minutes to, to read that 10 pages. But then as we got through that, I started reading other books on my mission. I got through all the New Testament, Old Testament, Doctrine and Covenants, you know, and that just really, really helped me. And then when I got back, I started going to uh, college and those same study habits kept working, you know, just the study habits I had on my mission. Another, you know, the weak things become strong where, uh, you know, God gave me a weakness um, so I could be reliant on him. And then he helped me see through it. And then when I was at, uh, I was at a community college, Palomar college in California. And I took this class that I thought was going to be like a reading class that I needed, but it ended up being like how to read better class. And I didn't realize it, but the guy teaching the class was like a national, nationally renowned, like reading specialist. I, I only got elective credits for the class, but he put me through all these exercises that sped up my reading, sped up my ability to understand. And so from there, when I eventually got like into like more difficult classes, I was able to handle them. And so it's just this long process of things in the way where if uh, if I was doing the right things, God would put them in my path. And yeah, I love hearing that progression and how it reminds me of like the beginning when you're saying when you're younger and somebody told your family, hey, if you get them to read the Book of Mormon, that will help. It reminds me of that quote of um, the study, the study of the gospel will help change behavior mm-hmm. more than the study of behavior will mm-hmm. change behavior. And I'm, I'm probably misquoting it, but um, (laughs) or quoting it badly, I should say, but I think (laughs) not that you were choosing to be dyslexic, but I think that's amazing how literally a study of the gospel helped to change things for you. Yeah. Yeah. It really put us on a 
good path. So, yeah. Yeah. And I'm hearing a lot of resilience in that too, because you could have just been like, well, no, I'm just going to go on. If I do go on my mission, I'm not going to choose to read that the Book of right. Mormon in 50, 60s. You know, <laughs> yeah. that sounds like because I have this uh, hardship, I'm not going to do that, right? Um, but you right. chose to dig in and, and do it. Yeah. Is- yeah. Well, and I was lucky because once he, and it sounds silly, but it was once he put it down to 10 pages, you know, where it's like, oh, you don't have to end at a chapter, you know, like you just read 10 pages. And that way I had a set amount of time that I read. And so once I adapted that to other books, that's when I started getting through other books. And it's, you know, I remember one of the first one was Gordon B. Hinckley's Go Forward with Faith. Um, It was his biography. And that one, you know, he talks about his education and that, before that, I was really planning on doing like a trade or something along those lines because I didn't think college was in my future. But like reading that and kind of seeing how, how getting gaining an education helped him, you know, it just made me go, you know, I was like, I've got to figure this out. I've got to do this. And so, and I actually, uh, when we were at, my wife got accepted to BYU with like a scholarship and I never got in. So it was kind of this you know, like sneaky back doorway. I got a degree from BYU that they've since closed the loophole, but I wouldn't have even been aware of it if I didn't, if I wasn't taking the classes like independent study and things like that, that I was doing. And I would have never done that because I know I wouldn't have read the books, but you can do independent study and you can read the books. So, (laughs) How about in current times? Does this still show up for you? Yeah, I still definitely, I think, well, um, when you have dyslexia, you always will have it, but it's, it's more of like, uh, funny things now, right. Where I'll see a word. Um, one thing that's kind of common with dyslexic people, if you see a word that begins and ends with the same letter as another word, you'll sometimes automatically assume it's that word because you start to rely on sight reading a lot more than, um, anything else. Right. And so, um, like if I'm reading out loud, I might say a word that is close, but it's, it's a totally different word. Right. But it has the fir- same first letter, same last letter. And I can't spell still at all. Like my kids think it's hilarious. If I have to write a note, I'm like, uh, I need spell check. Can I do this on the computer? <laughs> on the computer? <laughs> Cause you just don't break things down phonetically when you're dyslexic, because you don't, you don't see words that way. You, you see them, you, you start to sight read. And I think that's where a lot of people who are dyslexic, they, when they start being able to deal with it, it's when they start seeing the same words enough to where they recognize the word. So, but I rarely see in the middle, like I see it as like a whole word, basically, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, absolutely. But I never break it down phonetically. And if I have to, if I have a word that I've never seen that I'm reading, chances are I'm not going to pronounce it right. Because <laughs> my wife thinks that's pretty funny when I, <laughs> when I do that. Yeah, I think your experience has been uh, very helpful, maybe for people who struggle in a mm-hmm. similar way. Yeah. And I think they could draw just from the strength of and resilience of the things that you've said in your experience. But is there anything that you would 
say to somebody um, young who's struggling this way or encouragement you would give? Yeah, I think that because normally the unfortunate thing with um, dyslexics, just from from dyslexic people, especially youth, when they they either pick a path of they go, well, I'm obviously not very intelligent, and they keeps getting reinforced that they're not intelligent, and so they start to go, okay, let's go to this, let's go this path of the less intelligent individuals, right, and. Most people that I know that are dyslexic are really, really intelligent in other ways, where they either remember things really well, they they're sometimes very good at math. Like MIT actually has a lot of dyslexic students because they're really good at mathematics. So don't fall for, you know, you gotta realize that. And now there's things there that can help. With this, like um, we were talking before about uh, my old bishop's son that you know, he's actually severely dyslexic. But when he got into school, uh, they now have things like they have an iPad that'll read to you, right? So you can hear it, but it'll highlight the words as it goes. And that helps you start recognizing those words faster. But you're hearing it instead of reading it. So you you don't get as tired. You don't, you, you can focus longer on it. I've I I've seen I've talked to dyslexic uh, youth that they don't want people to know that they have that, so they won't take the iPad, they won't take the help, right? Because they don't want to be different. And it's like, man, I would have loved to have an iPad that read to me. Right? <laughs> so you can't be ashamed of it, and you just have to embrace the fact that you're going to be intelligent in different ways. And you don't have to be, it's not like necessarily like a scholar. Maybe you're just really good with your hands or you're really good with something else, but you can't just give up and go with the path of um, least resistance. So you got to step up and take care of it. So I wanted to talk specifically about your church leadership because you've served in young men's and a variety of other callings. And a lot of the time, those callings are pretty demanding on being able to make lists, being able to, you know, send out emails, uh, other things that require either reading or writing or both. Mm -hmm. Just how do you manage those high demand callings? And and I just wanted you to maybe unpack that a bit. Well, so that was the other part of, back when I served a mission, that was another part of it was that you you wrote letters home back and forth um, with family members and friends. They don't really do that as much. I, I think they do email still, but uh, I, and our mission president would have us write a letter to him once a week um, just so that he could kind of check in with us. And at the end of our mission, he gave me all my old letters. And then if my parents had kept all the letters I had written home and Definitely at the beginning of my mission, you could barely understand what I was trying to say because it just wasn't it just wasn't very coherent, if that like I, I couldn't write thoughts down because I just didn't do it very much. But as I that was the only way that I would hear from family, I kept writing and I would write to my mission president. And when I was looking through the letters, you could see like a progression of of getting better and being able to express what I needed to say, even though there were misspelled words and things like that, I could get across my point as I was forcing myself to do it. 
And so when I came back from my mission in school and stuff like that, as I'd write papers, we were always, I was always a storyteller growing up. I love to tell a good story. I love to hear a good story. And I, I do a little bit of hobby writing. And I really got to the point where I could really express myself well through writing just because of writing home writing letters home, where before I'd always tell the story and now I can actually write it down and and things like that. So just now communicating through email and because I have to do it at work a lot and, you know, I have to be able to express, being able to express yourself through writing is, is, uh, is, is a necessary skill. And um, so I think young men now at church that are having similar struggles or whatever, it's important for them to write a journal or, you know, things like that. Even if it doesn't make any sense, you know, you, you got to be able to learn how to put your thoughts down on paper and how to express yourself through writing and same thing with, you know, sending an email of directions <laughs> or things like that. So. I'm so hopeful. It, it's not a perfect analogy, but it makes me think a lot about the story of Moses where, you know, it, it, you know, he's a great leader and we all look at Moses as just an incredibly powerful person mm -hmm. um, who made an incredible impact on his people. And yet he dealt with feelings of inadequacy in several ways and he needed help from Aaron and other people. And I don't know, I just, I love how we have stories in the scriptures about people who just deal with real stuff that, yeah. that we have to face too. And I, I honestly, I'm appreciative of you too, just being willing to talk about this issue because honestly, you know, Deb, you can back me up on this. I think it's something a lot of people deal with and they just don't talk about, Right. you know, and I, I think that it, it can be a barrier for some people as, as far as their gospel progression or professional, whatever. And right. I'm with you. I, 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 if I see anybody or talk to anybody dealing with this, it's like, okay, that's a struggle. You can get better, but... Man, you are powerful in a lot of other ways, and don't forget that. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, and I think I know we we were talking about what what a theme might be, but I I guess like a theme throughout my life has always been I've seen so many different times where that that whole scripture of you know God gave us weaknesses so that we can be humble. If we go to Him with that weakness, they become strengths. And you know, I definitely went out weak on my mission and reading and writing, and I came back much stronger in those avenues. I, again, I'm not like a English professor, but I can manage. Yeah. And uh, and you can hold a tune now? I can hold a yeah. tune now. <laughs> There's just been so many examples throughout my life where something weak, a weakness I had that would cause insecurity or or just like a struggle would become something that – that I that I can be proud of, or something that I, that a strength, and it was always it always relates back to the to God needed me to be able to do that, so He provided a way for me to overcome that struggle. Yeah, and I think going back to the scriptures a bit, we know that oftentimes it's the most humble of the people that get called to do the most important things that Heavenly Father wants them to do. Like the youngest brother, um, you know, uh, the person that's uh, not strong in speech, you know, all of these examples where 
they're, you know, the smallest one. Uh, it's like, they're all examples of, yeah, that's, that's the person that I wouldn't have necessarily chosen, but Hey, God chose them to do it. So yeah. like, that's awesome. You know? And, uh, even the people in the scriptures surrounding those stories are like, you, <laughs> you're, you're the, what? Jesus, you're son of God, like what? Um, and so I think that's really cool to add to that perspective. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I I wanted to segue a bit. So you're you currently are serving in young men's. Mm-hmm. Uh, just it, uh, you've been there for a little while. I I was curious what you like about that calling. Um, yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah. So <clears throat> I was called as a young men's president. Excuse me, under Bishop Cole, and then you know the uh, first presidency released us over the pulpit, <laughs> and. Uh, <clears throat> got rid of the young men's presidencies and made the bishop the young men president. And so he called me as the advisor to the priest quorum and just basically relies on me to do the young men's president stuff. And then Bishop Cunningham came in and he sat down right away and said, Hey, I don't like to make a lot of changes. I think the youth need a chance to really to get to know their leader. So if you're good for a while, I want to keep you in. And so I've been in young men's for like, I would say five, I think it's been about, about five years um, in the same capacity, basically. But the biggest blessing for me has been I have three boys, and um, my oldest was thirteen when we when I was called into young men's. My middle son was just about to start as a deacon, and because of that, I've been able to be involved with their young men's development and. I I think back to when I was a priest, my dad was the young men's president, and that gave me a lot of opportunities to do things with my dad that I maybe wouldn't have been able to do. And so it's been a blessing of a calling. And then we we have some unique challenges in our ward where our youth, our young, well, our youth are spread out over like four or five different high schools, so they don't all see each other every day. And I think other wards might have the same thing, but I'm really proud of how the young men have just come together. Um, and when they see each other at young men's or at church or at an activity that we're doing, they're genuinely friends and they watch out for each other. And it's just the kind of unit that you would like any youth to be a part of, you know, even if they don't get to see each other every day. So that's been my favorite part is just watching how they've developed and, how they build each other up and, and um, you know, the, the stake does a lot of great things like the young men encampment and, and uh, you know, FSY was an amazing experience for a lot of the youth. And so I just get to witness them. I don't even have to plan them, right? <laughs> I just get to be there and get to see all the, the wonderful things that that's, that the youth get to do and uh, get to be a part of. So that's been my favorite part for sure is just seeing that. Yeah. I, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here and I, I apologize for that. Uh, no, I don't. Anyway, <laughs> um, what do you think your role is as a leader with the youth? Like what, what do you do? Um, well, I mean, the biggest thing, obviously, like, I mean, the mechanics of it are you got to communicate and make sure that they know that they're where, where we are, what we're doing, what the plan is. Yeah. But I think um, 
the most important thing, well, obviously, you know, you love the boys, you love them and you, um, you make sure that they understand that you have their best interests. But one, one challenge that I've really tried to, to, uh, work with our young men on at least is our Bishop really wants them to know that they can face and do hard things. And that's been kind of his theme since he's been, uh, the Bishop, Bishop Cunningham. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's such an inspiring thing. You know, I think you sometimes nowadays don't get to challenge, be challenged Mm -hmm. as often as maybe they could be, you know, just, trying to find ways to really kind of push them and see that they, they have this strength that they maybe didn't realize. Like we did a backpacking trip and we did 27 miles in three days. And um, we actually had the young women come too, which caused a lot of logistic things that we had to work out. But um, man, the, the youth just came back on fire from that. And uh, the testimony meetings were amazing. The firesides were amazing and just the fact that they were able to accomplish something that they might not have tried to accomplish otherwise. So just, you know, so I, I try to teach the young men to, that there, that there are going to be expectations. There are going to be responsibilities. There's things in their life that they're going to need to step up to. Um, they're going to be challenging. They're going to be hard, but that's what they're going to find the most fulfillment from. That's the, that's the things that they're going to find. Um, the the most uh well i mean fulfillment is really the word i guess is maybe not happiness all the time but fulfillment and purpose and you know because as they go on missions that's going to be hard and that's mm-hmm. going to stretch them but they're going to have all this purpose and fulfillment if they go and do it and when they get married and when they have kids you know there's not a lot of selfishness with those things. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, and I, I was just thinking about this because yeah. we were we were talking about actually one of the things you've been learning about is the role of men in society. And we were talking together as a group, you know, it's, it's so important, but it's such a hot button issue that we don't want to talk about that in the wrong way. We have to be really careful about it. Yeah. But one thing you made me think of actually is for young men in society today and really learning their role, I think that at an early age, you know, we're talking adolescence and, and teenage, they have to answer the one question, am I good enough? You know, because I, yeah. I think so much, oh, it's an area I feel strong about, but I think so much of the bad and inappropriate behavior, we're, we're focused on young men, but young women too, it's rooted in them not being able to answer that question. And so they acted out in inappropriate ways when they feel like they can't sat in a satisfying way, say that they're enough. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. You're, we, we have a therapist with us here. What are you, what are your thoughts <laughs> on this whole thing? On what you just said, I think I've been shifting a little bit in my practice of um, talking to people about self-worth and identity and, how do we help them to understand really? And so what I've been shifting is I used to do a lot of like self-affirmations and okay, make your own affirmation, all of this. Um, listen to this, you know, YouTube that has like a affirmation meditation, which is great. And I think all of those things are amazing, but really in, in the mire of all of this, okay, who am I, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, gender issues, um, masculinity versus femininity, femininity, sexual issues, um, all this identification that we're trying to do. The most important part of our identification is that we're children of God. And so if we can really grasp onto that and affirm that, I, I just heard a a talk from, oh, I don't even remember who it was now, but it was from 2017, General Conference in 2017. And he was talking about a story of a girl that caused a fatal car accident that caused another person to die. And she was just, she was just so upset and was like, am I a child of God? I don't know. I did this horrible thing that caused this horrible outcome. And so her therapist um, encouraged her to say that she was a child of God 10 times a day. And it took her eight months to be able to get up enough strength to do it. Um, But then when she finally was able to do it and tap into her divine identity of who she really is, it really did change things for her and help her. And I know within masculinity, within femininity, femininity, (laughs) I have a hard time saying that for some reason. (laughs) Anyway, it's late on a Friday night after a long week, folks. (laughs) Be gracious. Anyway, um, but within that, we know from the proclamation to the family that there's divinity in that and divinity in each each aspect. Um, so I wonder, you know, Peter, do you have any thoughts on, you know, your strengths and how masculinity plays into that? Because I know that's something that we talked about earlier before we got started. Well, I think uh, definitely. So growing up, my... My mom was a very strong personality. There were lots of reasons for that, but she was a very strong personality. And at the time, um, it wasn't necessarily the 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 proper way, right? Like there was a lot of there was there were sometimes grumbles with the way um, she was. And my dad was always one person would always like would say, and it's sounded like an insult, but we always kind of took it as a compliment. He would say, man, your mom's a pistol and your dad's a saint, right? And and we always looked at it as a compliment. I'm not sure my mom did, <laughs> but uh, she was raising five boys and two girls and, and we weren't always um, like perfect angels, right? We were sometimes rough and tumble and, and there was some, some things there, but a couple of the things my dad, like, a couple of the strengths my dad had that I really would love to mimic or for people to say about me when I got older was like, my dad had a very quiet dignity about himself. He never, I never heard him say anything bad about other people. Like he just didn't do that. He was very non-judgmental in that way. Um, he was always kind of the calming influence in my mom's life. You know, my mom was kind of a go-getter and and my dad as quiet, you know, like as kind of like the quiet dignity guy that he was, he still was always pushing forward and accomplishing these amazing things. He just wasn't calling a lot of attention to it, if that makes sense. Like, I mean, I was on my mission and he was, I think he was in his 60s and he decided he wanted to run a marathon. So he went out and trained for a year and he ran a marathon, you know, and I'm just like, who who does that right? Kind of <laughs> thing. Um, and he he's he you know he had a 
really good education and he made a good living and he took good care of us and he was always there for us. And I always thought my dad knew how to do everything. Like I always kind of took that for granted. Like I, when I got out of my own, I'm like, crap, how am I going to know everything like my dad does? And then I realized my dad probably didn't know everything, but he certainly seemed that way. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and between that, so I'd love for people to remember me that same way or my kids at least remember me that same way. But I think definitely some of the strengths were, you know, like I, um, I tend to be able to communicate with my kids in a way to help them understand and, and kind of push themselves, um, you know, where, and my, my wife has pointed it out a lot where, you know, like one morning, one of my kids didn't want to come to church. It was Sunday. And he's like, do we really have to go to church every, every Sunday, right? And <laughs> every single, every single <laughs> Sunday. And, um, I think that's one of my spiritual gifts was just that moment of revelation where I was like, well, what, or do you consider yourself a disciple of Christ? What would a disciple of Christ do, right? Instead of what I wanted to say was, yeah, we go to church every Sunday, go get dressed, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like we said so, go do it, right? And I was like, well, do you consider yourself a disciple of Christ? And he said, yeah. And I was like, what would what would a disciple oh, of Christ man. do? Right. And he I feel like I have to ask myself that. Yeah. Is, yeah. That's what Deb's gonna ask tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't want to teach Relief Society. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and so he doesn't ever question that anymore. And so I just kind of, I've had a lot of opportunities like that where, and and it's not obviously. I don't. I don't believe it's from me. I believe it's just one of the spiritual gifts that I was given. Where because I I don't act perfect all the time, and I. I do raise my voice with my kids and do, you know, say things that would probably be embarrassing for people <laughs> if other people overheard me or whatever. But uh but that's one of the strengths and just kind of like quietly pushing them to understand that you've got purpose that we really want you, you know, to rise up to. And um nothing you're gonna face can conquer you as long as you don't give up kind of a thing. And so luckily my, I've been blessed with kids that have kind of raised to that call. Um, Cause I mean, it really comes from them, but. Well, they had a good model of that, like with all of what you've told us already and that resilience piece. And yeah, I think it, it fits well into that, into that overarching theme, yeah. right? Yeah. Right the weaknesses to strengths. Yeah. And no, and I, I love the direction that conversation went. I think strong, you know, quiet love mm-hmm. and and care for, for your kids and the people around you. I, I think that's one way we could define uh, true masculinity. Um, and yeah, it's great. We just had a whole conversation a couple episodes ago about dad rage. And so <laughs> you've helped me decide to do a 180 on, on some of my behavior. So yeah. No, thank you for that. Thank you yeah. for for sharing. That was really helpful. Deb, do you want to get into anything else? Or what are some of like your favorite pastimes and hobbies? And um, I love to do. I used to have a lot of hobbies, but now I have kids. So no, I was kidding. Um, 
I, you know, I love basketball. I played basketball avidly growing up. Um, I'm now getting to the point where I probably should hang it up, but I'm still going out and playing when I can. And I've been able to avoid major injury, luckily, you know, I mean, turned ankles and stuff. So I love that. Um, I do like to, I read, well, I just discovered recently like Libby audio books. <laughs> so I can listen to, I can listen to books while I drive to work and stuff. And so that's been great. Um, I like to write. I, you know, as much involved with theater as I was when I was younger and did the Nauvoo mission, I haven't really, I haven't done any. The last play I was in was, I remember our first rehearsal was the night after I got engaged to my wife and I haven't done a play since. And that so that was a minute ago. <laughs> yeah, that was a minute ago. Yeah. So I'm, there's some reasons for that. So, but I, I still like, you know, like I enjoy going to a live play um, or a good movie and things like that. And then um, it used to just be like, I'd go to work and I'd come home and it'd be like wrestle time or roughhouse time with the boys. And now they don't like to do that anymore. So <laughs> now that, that time has passed. <laughs> awesome. Let's oh, go. and I like to golf now. Yeah. That's I was going to say you, so you have officially a little bit later and uh, later than I did, but you have officially entered the basketball hurts your body and you have to transition to golf. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a natural time in every man's life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It just, <laughs> my knees are telling me. Yes. Yeah. So we can find you on the golf course now, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Awesome. So eventually you and I'll uh, connect on that too. Right. Yeah. yeah. We have, we have big plans for that. We so. do. We do. Cool. <laughs> All right, I want to rapid fire some stuff. So every single episode this season, we have talked about Taylor Swift. What is your opinion on her? On Taylor Swift? Yeah. Um, oh, we haven't asked Deb that either, have we? No. You know, I I would say... John Sperry had a huge spiel about Taylor Swift. Oh, he I'll did? tell you that. Yeah. I I guess I don't have a, a strong opinion either way on Taylor Swift. That I, sounds yeah, good. She, I, I've, heard, I, I've heard some of her songs. I'm not going to... I. When she came to Portland or someplace nearby, I didn't yeah. go buy a ticket. Um, <laughs> I didn't join the crowds there. Uh, yeah, I yeah, I don't have a strong opinion on. What about you, Deb? Are you Swifty or? I don't really have a strong opinion either, believe it or not. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> but I don't know. I I seem to be behind the time sometimes in things that are really mainstream, like watching a show like years after it's come out, reading books years after it's come out. So. Maybe, who knows? There's always a future potential for becoming a Swifty. <laughs> yeah, I like I like some of her music. I, you know, I don't know. What, but it, you're most proud of becoming ordinary. I like oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think that goes along with so when I was back from my mission, well, so there's a couple things. So I was I was a goofball in, in high school. Um, just loved, loved an audience, loved to make them laugh. Um, so that's why theater really kind of appealed to me when I finally did it, even though Romeo and Juliet's not a comedy. Uh, <laughs> after that I did some comedies, right. And, and, but I was very unserious about things, mm -hmm. you know, I, and the, this might sound really, really, uh, silly, but. I remember watching Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, 
Right. And Robin Williams. Good I love throwback. Robin Williams. Yeah. yeah. And I that movie actually scared me pretty badly because I felt like that was the path I was heading on. Yeah. Where I was going to be dressing up in women's clothing. Well, I tell your, my uh, wife that. House. I yeah. tell my wife, yeah, I say I say if you ever leave me I'll stalk you dressed as a woman like Miss Doubtfire. But um <laughs> I just felt like I was heading to that like, you know, I don't handle responsibility and I could end up losing my my wife and children over it, right? Oh, the story, the plot. Yeah, yeah the gotcha. plot. It kind of scared me and then when I was back from my mission and I started doing theater again and got, you know, I had, I remember like uh, talking to different people I was in plays with or directors and they were like, you really should pursue like kind of professional, you know, ambitions on this, right? You should study it for school and you should go do this or that. And I remember I really, I really was tempted by it because I loved doing it. It was a lot of fun and, and I didn't feel like work, to me. But then I, when I met my wife and we started dating, I started really looking at what the lifestyle is like, you know, for, and it's not that people can't have successful families and, and everything else when they, when they have that kind of, um, when they're in show business or whatever, but it's just less common. And, and looking back at like Miss Doubtfire, I was like, I, you know, I remember one of my directors saying, well, what's your dream? You should follow your dream, right? And they meant it like you should be following, you should be going after theater and studying it and being more serious. And and around that same time, I saw like uh, an actor say, my only goal was to make it, right? Like everything else was back burner. And um, I thought, my goal is to be a husband and a father and be reliable to my family. And I don't know that I can do that with this current path I'm on. And so I remember talking to my, my now wife and I said, I think I've got to give up theater. You know, I've got to, I've got to go do, like find a job and get skills and graduate from school and worry about that. And um, my wife's a very black and white type person. Like there's right and there's wrong. Right. And she, she was fully on board cause she kind of saw the same things that I was seeing. And so, you know, I remember getting a, like a career type job and like working it and showing up to work every day and coming home and the kids are, you know, little babies at the time and going, this is my, this is my life now. This is what I chose. This was the path I chose. And I wasn't ungrateful for that. You know, it was very ordinary. And I, I would joke that, no, I'm, I'm playing, I'm pulling off the best acting job I've ever done, you know, <laughs> pretending I know what I'm doing as a father and as a husband, right? Like, oh. it's just, a, it's just a performance every day. Yeah. So that's what Father's Day for. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Right. So anyway, uh, but that's, that was right. kind of the, the, and that kind of, so you know, knowing that it would have an effect on like how many, how many people lose their testimonies and stuff and go that wrong path. So it was, it was a good wake up call, even though that director didn't mean to give me that wake up call. 
(laughs) Well, you should follow your dreams. Oh, well, my dreams are not that. My dreams are this. And if I want to do this, then, you know, I might need to stop doing (laughs) stop doing this and i I don't mean to like say oh don't don't do theater it's it's bad right it's just it wasn't gonna work for me i wasn't so talented that people were just gonna come out of the woodworks i was gonna be an unreliable provider and i was gonna be an unreliable um you know working random hours and doing weird things to try to make ends meet and I wasn't going to put my wife and children through that. So, yeah. And I think there's something important there too, about like the person that said, Oh, my whole goal is to make it. Well, what happens when you make it and that doesn't make you happy or yeah. what happens when you get there and what's after that. So I think having more of an eternal perspective yeah. and more of that being a responsible provider and knowing, Hey, there, there's other things that play here that are more important maybe than, this um, singular goal, you know, kind of helping my family and all of that, I think really speaks a lot to your character and, you know, the choice that you made there. So, so yeah, now I'm just an ordinary guy. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least playing one really well. Yes. Yes. Very. I'm not ordinary, but I play one on incredible. (laughs) Yeah. It's so good. Oh, we're gonna have to we're we're gonna have to get your wife on anyway. See if she agrees with that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that I'm ordinary. We need another opinion <laughs> on this. Oh, your favorite color is blue because mm-hmm. of BYU. Uh, no, it was oh, okay. I was the only kid in my family that had blue eyes. Oh, and okay. So my mom would buy all blue everything for me growing up. Lucky. Yeah. So I always had blue clothes and it was just like given that I was going to, blue was going to be my favorite color. And then, yeah, BYU definitely helped with that. It sounds like I'm a BYU hater. If you listen to the full podcast, like that comes up very often, but they're like my second or third team that I pretend to like if the Ducks aren't good. So, you know, it's like. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They're the backup. Um, So. Let's let's go to last question, and I'm going to tweak it a little bit. Okay. So I, I've been throwing you a lot of curveballs, so apologies for that, I guess. I don't know. But <laughs> I, I do like the theme that we've gotten into of weak things becoming strong. So I would say, how has your experience in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints helped the weak things become strong with you? Well, I think, um, you know, I mean, there's the obvious answers, right? I wouldn't have gone on a mission if I wasn't a, tr- a member of the church, right? And that really, I think a lot of times when people, like, well, I shouldn't say a lot of times. I know when I was leaving on my mission, I was like, oh, it'll be great. All my, like, weaknesses will be, like, evaporated, right? Like, I, it'll just become, and I think what really happened was my weaknesses got magnified and I had to figure out <laughs> how to get, you know, through those. And it helped me. um and of course, with the strength of the spirit, right? That it it really helped me. But I I think that my membership in the gospel, um, you know, somebody asked me recently. They said, "Hey, you know, they they had asked me like, how well, what percentage of your choices would be influenced by your membership as as a member of your church, right?" And 
And as I really sat down and thought about it, and I was like, I can't think of anything in my life that hasn't at least been influenced by my membership in the church. Um, you know, the decision to the decision to kind of turn the eternal path, right? Where it's like, I, I want to be focused on having a wife and children. That was more that was influenced definitely by the church, right? That was um because that's an eternal perspective. Um, to go on a mission, to, you know, do try to do the right thing when I was in high school and things like that to kind of keep me on that path was greatly influenced by my friends who I had in seminary and and uh, and just being taught a certain way, right? And, and my parents' influence over me. And so as I as those weaknesses, most of the weaknesses that I had to overcome were all things that were affecting me spiritually or with eternal type goals. And I know I I have a very strong testimony that God will take those things and help you become better if you do rely on him. And then it's important to not forget what he's blessed you with um, as you as you do start to overcome. And I, I, uh, so I, I talk to my kids about it. I talk to my wife about it. And, you know, every opportunity I have, we're constantly talking about a weakness that became a strength or like a path through a hard thing. And it's always because of the, the Holy Ghost, the gift of the Holy Ghost and the, uh, a testimony that, there is a God and he has expectations of me and he'll help me reach those expectations if I, if I do what he, do what he asks and he won't ask me to do it if I can't. And so, um, so all of those things, even something as simple as, you know, one thing that I really wanted was to be really good at basketball when I was in high school. Right. Like, but when I started high school, I was four foot nine like around 94 pounds. <laughs> I was really, really small. Everybody was bigger and stronger. And, but I still would go out and I would, pr- I remember praying, I just want to be good at basketball, you know? And, and I, I think God does care about those things, you know? And as I started to get to an average height, it was some of those things that I learned when I was a small player really helped when I was the same size as everybody. You know, I was able to, to, do some things that I probably wouldn't have been able to do if I hadn't gone through that weak point. And I think that's the same thing with the dyslexia and the singing and uh, the struggle I had getting through college um, through kind of an unconventional path. And, and all of those things just helped me. I, I think it was God telling me, Hey, you needed my help mm. the whole way with everything. Um, so don't forget that, you know, and especially as I get older and those things become further and further in the past, you know, it's important to remember that he kind of gave me a path and helped me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Connection Podcast. I know that we did. Uh, Deb and I really enjoyed speaking with Peter. I also hope that many of you have learned from the lessons that Peter shared and found ways that you can maybe make weak things strong in your life. I know I've reflected on some of those things since speaking with Peter. Until next time, guys, take care. Mm -hmm.